You're listening to the Inner Light with Ellen podcast. I'm your host, Ellen Wyoming Deloy. I'm a coach in Portland, Oregon, who works with people across the US and occasionally the world. I help people to transition from where they are to where they want to be, removing limiting beliefs, barriers, and imposter syndrome along the way. On this show, I bring you conversations with leaders in wellness, spirituality, healing, mindfulness, and more. We also dive into themes around intuition, equity, racial justice, and what it means to be living here in the 21st century. I'm excited to bring you each episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. If you want to learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. Enjoy the episode. Nathan, I'm so glad to have you back here again for our third episode. Thank you for being here again today. My pleasure. Nice to see you again, Ellen. Yeah. So um, if you're if you're popping in, Nathan and I, before we hit the record button, what we actually did today is we started with our own mindfulness practice. Nathan led me through um, an exercise or a guided a sort of mindfulness meditation. And I was so blissed out. I was like, I don't know how we can record this episode. It's like we've both microdosed on mushrooms and we need to come back down to earth so we can have this conversation. (laughs) Um, And I was like, that's a good selling point for mindfulness. Like you don't have to spend money on anything. You just, you just get into the other plane of existence. Um, as a quick side note, I do want to say the meditation that Nathan led me through, he is uploading or has uploaded to Insight Timer. So if you want to get into that space, feel free to pause this and click the link below to do the meditation right now with Nathan or bookmark it for later because it kind of just ties in, it ties into today. And today we're talking about mindfulness and equity. And I'll stop right there. And Nathan, will you introduce us a little further into these concepts? Yeah, thank you for that, Ellen. I, I, um, I think it's helpful to give that uh, kind of notice that we were meditating previous to this. Because um, <clears throat> if it sounds like we're speaking at a slower pace, that might have something to do with it. <laughs> um, yeah, so mindfulness and equity and, and the connection between the two um, is something that I uh, like to explore in in doing equity work, education work, training, and so forth, um, because it has so much utility. Um, So that's, I I think, where we're going with this conversation. Um, To kind of frame us up a little bit, to get, you know, use some common language, uh, when we're talking about mindfulness in this context, we can understand it as, and this is, you know, there's different definitions, but the way I'll frame it is um, being attentive to the present moment, uh, non-judgmentally, uh, I would add with compassion or, or kindness, um, and really being able to focus in, centering in on one point, um, and being able to uh, be aware of, of what's happening from moment to moment. Um, and why is that relevant to doing 
equity work? What's the connection there? Um, for me, what I've found just on my own personal journey of doing this work is self-compassion is, is the foundation. Right? It's, it's the only way I can see myself continuing to do this work that uh, involves confronting personal traumas. It involves confronting intergenerational traumas uh, when we're dealing with racism and sexism, uh, all different forms of oppression in society that we may be directly experiencing or indirectly experiencing. Um, in, in, in both cases, it's suffering. Uh, and, and it can be very intense, of course, as, as many of us know, if not all of us. And so just on a, as a first foundational level, having a resource internally and a tool and, and, and something to actually do, right? Um, it's not, in this context, it's not around beliefs. It's not around, um, doesn't need to be around a, a spiritual system necessarily, um, but it is a resource for folks to be able to come back to themselves, show themselves kindness, and be aware of what's coming up in the process of doing some of this work. And because this work is also very deeply personal, right? Sometimes, and I, I, I do a lot of this work uh, in terms of working to advance racial equity, diversity, and inclusion in an organizational context, and oftentimes that's... Uh, framed around how can we change systems, how can we change policies, how can we change culture, and all of that is is really important, larger context. Um, and how do we do all those things? It cannot be separated from how we are showing up ourselves. Nathan, that's thank you for that. Uh, sort of grounding in how mindfulness and the work of advancing racial equity and equity work can coexist. Um, one of the things that came to mind while you were speaking around kind of self-compassion or compassion, um, well, it made me think of that and judgment and non-judgment. And just what I've noticed um, in my coaching work and also in the teamwork that you and I do together is the, the many people are very harsh critics and they might be working on not doing that as much. They might be working because mindfulness is definitely like in the zeitgeist of the moment. Um, we're trying to find ways to release and to be less judgmental of others. But what I what I find is the harshest critics of others, even if they're trying to hide it or couch it, they are still the harshest critics of themselves. And it's those who judge themselves really harshly, who punish themselves harshly for missteps, who don't have a practice of self-forgiveness and self-compassion, it's hard to move the dial forward for how you might be able to truly do it for others if you haven't found some of the tools to do it yourself. And we're diving immediately into what is a very simple concept, but is not easy to do. And so the grace of not doing it right, not being perfect and practicing come to mind 
a lot as I as I listen to you in this in this early early part. Yeah, thank you for that frame, Ellen. I, the The self judgment piece is it's a human condition, right? It's not doesn't it's not cornered in, into any particular group. Um, but what what's interesting in, in the connection to equity work, I think, is inequities are the definition. It could can be part of the definition of oppression, right? When groups are underserved, they're repeatedly um, devalued and um, dealing with uh, less, right, uh, and and not getting needs met. Um, those are all forms of oppression and they're rooted in judgment, right? They're rooted in groups, whether it's by gender, whether it's by sexual orientation, race or ability status and so forth. It's rooted in judgment on groups that are being othered in, in judgment and being treated as less than, right? Or as second-class citizens. And that root of judgment is something that we all experience, no matter what position of social identities and intersections of social identities that we have. Right. And so when we say it's really important to start with ourselves, that's how we start to break that cycle of oppression. Groups aren't going to stop being oppressed if we still are behaving in ways that are oppressive, which you know are rooted in, in judgments self-judgments, right, as well as judgments of others. And so it, it's kind of like the analogy of the well-used analogy of when you're on an airplane in a crisis, you put on your own uh, breath mask before uh, helping somebody else. Um, and, and I think that's really valuable, uh, one, because it's a reminder to breathe, um, and that's also a way to take care of ourselves and to process what's happening. Um, and then also because a lot of times folks that do care um, will not take care of themselves in the name of taking care of others, right? Whether it's in social services, uh, nonprofit work of all types, um, or just caring individuals, right? And, and they'll, they want to and, it, and it's noble, right, to want to put family and, and loved ones and even strangers uh, in front of oneself in, in spirit and, and to be able to do that more effectively, are we repeating oppressive dynamics of judgment? I just really want to thank you for saying that part of it. Cause I realized as I was saying, sometimes these people who are the hardest critics of themselves are the hardest, cr harshest critics of others. And there are also people who don't allow themselves to be first because they give everything to everyone else first and who really are not judging others, right? Who do not, um, who have more, comp their, their compassion cup overflows in the direction outward, but they're not giving enough to themselves. There really are both types that show up, right? The perfectionist for themselves, who's harsh of other people, but then also the person who is never judging, but then themselves doesn't receive. And I think you've just highlighted that. Thank you so much for bringing that. Cause I know someone listening was like, well, wait a minute. No, I don't judge anyone. 
ever. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And all the and all the gray areas in between, right? Exactly. As well. Some sometimes we might be positioned in, on one end, and sometimes in another. But yeah, the 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 spirit of practicing for ourselves in order to be able to practice for others, right? To strengthen our own ability to show up in what I like to call a culture of equity um, is, is rooted in as, as opposed to a culture of domination or, or, or what is sometimes referred to as dominant culture. Um, what are those things, right? How do, if we're trying to break cycles of oppression and racism and sexism and so forth, um, it's not just technical analysis of, of, of policies. It, that is, there's, there's, that's certainly part of it. And how are we showing up in relationship to ourselves and to others? And so when we practice with ourselves, um, we can do less harm to others if, as we develop greater ability to show ourselves compassion. And I think that's a, something that uh, when we take more time to do it, uh, it ref- like you said, it refills our cup. It gives us more energy um, and, and, and it, it's understood in research that bias is reduced when we're able to more genuinely understand and have compassion for other perspectives and other people's experiences. And so this is one of the hows to doing that is, is taking that time and doing um, intentional work to show yourself love, uh, whether that be through guided meditation or whether that be through other practices that like, just checking in with your body. Maybe I need to rest like simple things that sometimes we neglect. And I feel like everything you're mentioning here is really important as one goes through um, their learning process around racial equity. And so I'm thinking in particular at this moment about people who might be doing like a racial equity, diversity and inclusion training where mindfulness may not be a part of the information that they're being given and um, and in the way that they reflect on the process. I do think it's finding its way into a lot of the training and conversations. You and I were both mentioning the book, um, The Inner Work of Racial Justice by Rhonda McGee, um, where mindfulness and evolving to a more equitable future is the core tenet of the book. And um, But as you're talking about these tools here, these are things, if you're listening and you're in a training, you're going through a training or you want to be learning it, practicing the mindfulness of noting how you're responding personally to the information is a space for inquiry to look at, oh, here is a space where some information experience or cultural knowledge is lodged and I'm having a sensation or reaction to it. What does that mean for me? Why am I having it? How is it there? It's really slowing down the information train, right? We get so much information through a training or what we absorb through a video or a book or content that we don't take the time to see how our body receives it, to integrate it as felt experience and actually true unpacked understanding. And so this whole conversation might feel very like mindfully based and paced, but it's, it's also the embodiment of how we can be as we go through. 
Absolutely. And I, some, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> sometimes the, the challenge is recognizing the water that we're swimming in oh, because yeah. we can normalize dehumanizing behaviors and practices like not acknowledging people when they're in your space, right? Little things like that have a dehumanizing effect, you know, not recognizing somebody that's just entered your space. That doesn't feel good, right? Um, and so many other ways that when, a, when some business cultures prioritize production, productivity, um, bottom line results over wellness of human beings, not that it has to be that way, but when that is the case, um, and we normalize that, and we work all hours of the day, and we neglect our families, or you know, there's so many ways that we can manifest unhealthy habits and normalize it, right? And and say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. It it might be the way that it is. And can we pause? Can we check what is actually causing harm, starting with ourselves? But then, of course, expanding that outward because we're not going to be very effective at doing anti-racism work or any type of anti-oppression work if we've normalized it so much that we're not even able to see it, right? And so part of, to your point, part of this is an in internal inquiry about how am I doing, right? What do I need actually at a fundamental level? And, and, when, and if we're doing, like to your example of, of going through a training around equity, and, and white privilege or um, dominant culture, yeah, unconscious, unconscious bias, right. all these loaded terms, all these heavy terms, microaggressions, <laughs> these things that are triggering for because of real experiences that people have. Um, noting that in our body, like when are we experiencing cognitive dissonance? When are we experiencing tension? Right in the in in our heart space or in our our neck or wherever it, how it upsets stomach wherever feelings come up when somebody says something because our relationships are fundamental to do this work and if we're shutting down and we're not even aware that that's happening um, that's how we put up walls that might be necessary for survival in some situations. But if it becomes the norm, especially when talking about issues of sexism, racism, and other forms of oppression, um, that's how we keep barriers up to getting into these issues and actually getting some substantive change around them because we're not even willing to talk about them because they don't feel comfortable, right? And so how do we start to intentionally allow ourselves to feel into the space and not just analyze it intellectually at, at arm's length? Nathan, one, and you and I talked about this, one of the difficult things about having a podcast episode around mindfulness and talking about mindfulness is like, how can you also not do some form of mindfulness in the episode, right? So we recorded the meditation prior to this, which is available, but what I'm, what you're making me think of right now is Nathan, can you walk us through a few steps? Um, maybe not doing a whole 
guided practice in this moment. But if somebody is finding themselves triggered or having a sensation that's deeply discomforting because of a topic that's been raised, maybe they're even just scrolling through their phone and an article headline jumps out at them and makes them feel deep discomfort to where they want to shut that window and distract themselves, right? What are some things people can do in the moment that allow them to start a mindfulness awareness exercise to help them start to investigate that and make space for themselves to have the breadth of their experience in a way that's um, uh, conducive to to their wholeness. Can you walk us through something on this? Yeah, I love love that question. (laughs) Um, So a few thoughts. One one I'd like to start with... uh, describing a mindfulness bell and its purpose because it relates to this so mindfulness bell um, is used often in in meditation spaces uh you know a bell is invited and you hear the sound of it and it's an invitation to return to the present right and notice what is alive in you in this moment feelings thoughts uh sensations in the body Um, not to chase them or or make narratives about them, but just to come back to the present moment and breathe into what is alive for you right now. And so that's the function of a mindfulness bell, an actual bell. Um, However, the mindfulness bell isn't just a bell. Thich Nhat Hanh, the great meditation master, um, Zen Buddhist uh, uh, teacher, he um, would talk about mindfulness bells in all spaces, right? Um, and that could be a car horn honking and your reaction to that, whether that's anger or fear or whatever might come up in that moment. And so we have all these opportunities in it, or it could be birds chirping outside. Um, whether pleasant or unpleasant, um, we have infinite opportunities to have mindfulness bells to check in and see what's coming up. Um, so I actually would recommend before as kind of a, a gradual process to practice some using a mindfulness bell of choice, whether that's in actual formal meditation practice or whether that's something that, you know, maybe causes a mild reaction in you, whether that's a baby crying or whatever the sound in your environment might be that draws your attention, um, it's an invitation. It can be an invitation to say, oh, let me check in and see what comes up for me in that moment. And I recommend starting there because if you start in the deep end of the pool, so to speak, with some really triggering words in a, in a race, gender, oppression, conversation type of, type of situation, that might be uh, over our head if, if we haven't prepared ourselves enough with practice uh, of mindfulness. Um, but the exercise essentially is you get to a point where even when it is some of those more intense types of, uh, tough conversations, uh, we can notice, oh, I'm getting that feeling in my stomach, that clenching, or, oh, I'm getting that faster heart rate, right? We can notice these, these, um, little cues that our body gives us when we're reacting to something. And the beauty of, of mindfulness, one of the many beauties, is it allows us a pause when we're conscious of, of how our body and how our mind and how our feelings are responding to a stimulus. 
And in that pause, we have choice and we have agency and we have power. And we can choose how we want to channel our energy, our response, and not be um, overtaken by emotion or um, reaction, reactivity, which is where biases are uh, flourishing, right? In our reactivity. So having a mindfulness bell of sorts is a way to interrupt bias, and, and but it does take practice for sure. Thank you, Nathan. Uh, what a what a clear and clean and simple practice people can take to heart. I have a feeling while people were listening to this, some number of them heard a car horn or a revving engine or a child crying. I can hear kids in your background. I don't know if your window's open and it's just life outside. Sometimes I hear a little pop through. So it's just, yeah, there's one right there. There's just this very gentle approach to it. Um, yeah, thank you. That's just so helpful. Something you said as you were kind of walking through examples that sparked my curiosity was this very fundamental understanding that I don't think is that quick. I wanted to dive in a little deeper where our unconscious biases and where bias sits is in our reactivity. Can you unpack that statement a little bit further for us? Mm. Sure. So, uh, the scholar Daniel Kahneman talks about system one and system two thinking, right, in the brain. And so system one thinking essentially is the quick reactive mode of the brain. Um, it's really useful in um, survival situations like, oh, I need to jump out of the way of that car that's coming right for me. Um, it's really useful, you know, throughout human history for, you know, dealing with when you need to make a quick decision to protect yourself or someone else. Um, and then system two thinking is the more deliberative, slow, uh, analytical thinking and, and being intentional about decision-making without needing to be in a rush. Um, the relationship to bias is that we tend to fall into our social, there's all types of biases, right? But for the purposes of talking about equity, um, where the context is intergroup bias and how we can make quick snap judgments about people based on their social identities, whether that's by gender or race and other identity markers. And, and of course, that's where the isms, whether sexism or racism or ableism, manifest in, in interpersonal dynamics, in decisions that affect policies and systems. Um, and it's in that reactivity and it's in that, not only in that reactivity moment, but in normalizing those types of decisions because they've become part of the culture, right? They become normal. So you don't even have to be in a instant of, oh, I have to make a quick decision. It just comes automatic, which is why it's biased right? and it's usually unconscious, um, so that's kind of that reactivity and how it gets kind of baked into culture. It gets, and we talked in an earlier podcast about how we're socialized with these um, valuation hierarchy of different social identities, right? Um, and, and so that becomes part of how we evaluate things quickly. And so to interrupt that, uh, mindfulness 
is one tool. And mindfulness isn't just in terms of meditation. It can be reflective writing. It can be deliberation and committees to explicitly talk about how are we making sure that this is an equitable decision that's happening? How are we making sure that certain groups aren't repeatedly disproportionately burdened by this type of decision, right? That's how we start to systematize it. But it's also how we interrupt our immediate individual biases by taking time um, to be present and to be aware of how are we making decisions. Oh, thank you. I also appreciate so much. I've never quite thought about it this clearly before. The way that you framed reactivity can be so- become so baked into the culture that it really turns into assumption. There's not even a break where you have to react. It just, the train keeps going. There's no stop. And um, that is so profound. I feel like it's so helpful to start to see it as how unconscious bias can be so thriving in different cultures of dominance when they're just going without question. And your invitation for where mindfulness doesn't have to be this meditation practice. There are definitely people listening who are like, meditation is so hard for me. I'm so squirrely. I can't sit still. My mind is very active. It's very difficult to meditate. And the invitation to where you start to just set the intention to notice a sound or a sensation to slow down. And I feel like mindfulness is simply inviting a pause so you can have more time to consider what's happening. That's an Mm -hmm. oversimplification, but it feels like at a core tenet, mindfulness practice is inserting a deliberate pause. That's it. There's no magic, again, simple, not easy to it. Yes. And I would add one other essential ingredient, I think, especially in the context of doing equity work, is to come from a spirit of kindness to ourselves and to others. Um, So yes, it is, it's about that pause, but I also, I've I've seen and experienced and and participated in more sterile intellectual exercises of that because it's removed from the intention of kindness, the intention of self-compassion and compassion for others. And that makes a world of difference. So that, I think that would be my closing note is to look for, moments to pause in order to get, show ourselves kindness and and show others kindness as well. Oh, yes. Thank you so much for that. Um, It reminds me of generosity in place of non-judgment, in place of judgment, (laughs) generosity and non-judgment. So that generosity takes the place of judgment and having it for the space of self, not others. And I know we're, we're, we're in wrapping up, but you had mentioned before we started, and I feel like this is the note to take a note on. You had mentioned talking about um, seeking to understand in yourself where you may be complicit with your own oppression, personal oppression, <clears throat> and how <throat> that might contribute to the oppression of others, right? It's n- I don't think anyone listening here is intentionally out to oppress people, right? That's not the conversation. The conversation is bringing mindful awareness where we're unkind to ourselves and we're self-oppressing and how that shows up unconsciously in the oppression of others if our intention is not that. And when you said kindness, that feels like one of the keys to unlock 
a stuck spot. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think I, I love this topic too. And I think I'll say a couple of things. I think it's a great one as a segue to go deeper into what is a culture of oppression, what's a culture of dominance, um, and what's a culture of equity or a culture of kindness. Stay um, tuned. In order- That's the next episode. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, on in just as a, as a thought on that, um, when are we being perfectionist, right? To the point where that's harming ourselves or creating a lot of judgment towards ourselves ultimately and by extension to others. Because if we're doing it to ourselves, like you said, the chances are we're doing it to others as well. Um, When are we impatient simply, right? When are we, you know, and of course these are human things. It's not that we are gonna just decide not to be these things. But are we being attentive to how this becomes normalized in our culture? And can we make a conscious choice to notice that, right? And because if we, if, if we just assume that all of this is normal and it's the way it is and don't challenge it, doesn't mean we flip a switch and, and all of a sudden it's gone, especially if it's been habitual through our lives. Um, but the, 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 the challenge and the task at hand for advancing equity work is to break the status quo, right? To, to not keep that cadence anymore. Because if we keep showing up in the same way, how can we expect different results that are going to be more equitable? And so equity is really rooted in how are we showing people um, kindness and how are we showing ourselves kindness and in doing that naturally we need to be looking for what how are we meeting people's needs right we can't meet people's needs and not show them kindness right so that's kind of a a prerequisite for this work and then looking at all the habits that are barriers to that (laughs) you couldn't see my face right then but i did the thing with all the habits that are barriers. It's okay, everyone. We all have the habits that contribute to some barriers and it's an invitation to explore them. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, yeah. And and we can, you know, that was really a quick overview, but I think we could dive a little more into that in the next one. Yeah. So Nathan and I have talked about a next episode being around um, uh, cultures of dominance, cultures of equity. um, And we can expand further on how kindness can be sort of the how, right? So there's the what, like we want to create an equitable outcome, an equitable workplace, uh, a society and a place where racial justice exists all the time. And there's a how and how we embody that, right? It's probably not punitive. That hasn't worked yet. That has not worked yet. (laughs) I'm going to sing it. Um, and there's this kindness piece and it just, oh, I feel so animated about that. And I love it. Um, as a brief aside, Nathan was sharing with me some, uh, research he'd been doing around what organizations are looking at in terms of their investments for workplace culture. Um, so to tie this into like the bigger picture of kind of the future of work, we know that a lot of people, I think I saw a stat that 21% of the workforce submitted resignation notices in 2021. Um, 
I can't quote where that came from because I don't remember, but (laughs) people are unhappy. The systems are hard and we've been challenged. And so there's a lot of emphasis now on retention and creating cultures where work can work and kindness. Oh, let that be a mission statement in every single boardroom in addition to many other things, please. Um, it feels like a really apt, ripe, and applicable conversation that I look forward to having with you next time, Nathan. Likewise. Thanks, Anna. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in today and listening to the show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen. And if you love the show, leave a five-star review so others can find us. To learn more about my work and what I do, go to ellenwyomingdeloy.com. Thanks. See you next time.